So he's thinking about all kinds of different spaces for these troubling, we might call them uncanny now if we're going to be Freudian, but uncanny things happening to you. But if you're writing theoretically from beyond the grave or you're, you're using a persona from beyond the grave, then you don't really have that worry anymore. So you can be much more direct, I think. Welcome back to the precarious world of Thomas Nash, where we're exploring the underbelly of Elizabethan England through the life and writings of the author Thomas Nash. I'm Kate DeRaker from Newcastle University, and in this final episode, I will be exploring Nash's interest in ghosts, supernatural beings stuck between this world and the next. What is it about living in precarious times, I wonder, that lends itself to this gothic mode of writing? So far in this series, we've been thinking about financial precarity in the Elizabethan period, but we've also considered the impact of precarity as life and death problems like famine and the plague. As Andrew Hadfield reminded us in the previous episode, life was generally dangerous. If you read so many Elizabethan writers, most of them don't expect to live very long. And they write, you know, like mad men and occasionally like mad women, just producing as much material as they can because they don't think they're going to be around that long. So there's a definite live fast, die young vibe with this generation of writers. Two of Nash's friends, Robert Greene and Christopher Marlowe, both died quite young. Green died in 1592 after a boozy night out, while Marlowe was murdered in a tavern the next year, either after a fight over the bill or because he had got on the wrong side of an angry aristocrat. Nash himself died in his early 30s. We're not sure exactly why, but we do know that other writers paid tribute to him through comparisons with his most enduring character, that angry young student, Pierce Penniless. The playwright Thomas Middleton, for example, portrays Nash as a ghostly figure still haunting London. We heard a bit of this description at the end of episode four. In this unfortunate tiring house lay poor Pierce upon a pillow stuffed with horse meat, the sheets smudged so dirtily as if they had been stolen by night out of St Pulcher's churchyard when the sexton had left a grave open and so laid the dead bodies woolward. The coverlet was made of pieces, a black cloth clapped together, such as was scattered off the rails in King Street at the Queen's funeral. Pierce, a.k.a. Nash, is lying on a pillow stuffed with hay. Don't worry, horse meat here means the stuff you feed horses rather than horses' flesh itself. This is quite a gothic scene, though. Nash is almost a zombie here, sleeping on bedsheets that look like they were stolen from open graves, or like the black sheets used to decorate the streets of London at Queen Elizabeth I's funeral. The narrator, who, by the way, is the devil himself, continues finding a copy of Nash's infamous text, Pierce Penniless's Supplication to the Devil. In that pamphlet, the hungry, angry writer Pierce sends a letter to hell to beg for money. Middleton continues the story, with the devil returning to London a bit too late. Upon this miserable bed's head lay the old copy of his supplication in foul-written hand, which my black knight of the post conveyed to hell, which no longer I entertained in my hand, but with the rattling and blabbing of the papers, poor Pierce began to stretch and grate his nose against the hard pillow. 
So Middleton has taken Nash's premise of a young freelance writer who is so desperate for work that he must write to the devil and writes a sort of fan fiction about it. In his black book, the writer is an infernal, possibly undead figure. But why did Nash and Middleton find this demonic theme so interesting? Well, they were living shortly after the Protestant Reformation, a theological revolution which had, amongst other huge changes, disposed of the belief in purgatory. Now, purgatory is a sort of celestial waiting room for Catholics. The very good might go straight to heaven, the very bad might go straight to hell, but the majority of people, who are neither especially good or bad, were meant to go to purgatory, a space where they would have their sins purged before being allowed to go to heaven. And people on earth could pray for their souls in order to expedite that process. When the new theology of Protestantism removed the option of purgatory, it also removed a potential comfort for many people, because the only other option for those of us who know we've not been that good was hell. So people started looking into alternatives. Dr. Rachel White from the University of Durham explains. The Protestant Reformation, it essentially removed a space where the dead would go. It removed purgatory. So these ghosts that appear in the Elizabethan period when they're mentioned, they've come from somewhere else. They've come from hell, like I suppose like old Hamlet's ghost. There's probably fairly widespread belief in ghosts, but possibly a bit more concern about where exactly they've come from because that entire theological space and system doesn't really exist anymore. In Renaissance revenge tragedies, ghosts are also quite subversive figures, prompting their living relatives to take revenge for their untimely deaths. Think of one of the most famous examples, the ghost of Hamlet's father, who sets the bloody action of that play into motion. Nash makes fun of this stock character by turning the vengeful stage ghost into a comic character. In his play Summer's Last Will and Testament, Nash has a character called Will Summers who acts as an interpreter for the audience. He's the ultimate go-between or marginal figure. For one thing, he hovers between where the audience is sitting and the stage. For another thing, the first time we see him, it's not entirely clear if we're looking at the character Will, who is the ghost of Henry VIII's by now very dead clown, Will Summers, or if we're looking at the actor portraying him. Here he is speaking directly to the audience, seemingly while struggling into his costume. There is no such fine time to play the knave in as the knight. I am a goose, or a ghost at least, for what with turmoil of getting my fool's apparel and care of being perfect, I'm sure I have not yet supped tonight. Will Summer's ghost I should be, come to present you with Summer's last will and testament. This opening gets even more meta. The actor, seeming to be speaking off the cuff, explains that he's actually speaking the words of the author, Thomas Nash, who he calls the idiot, our playmaker. So it is that one fool presents another, and I, a fool by nature and by art, do speak to you in the person of the idiot, our playmaker. He, like a fop and an ass, must be making himself a public laughing stock and have no thanks for his labour, where other magisteri, whose invention is far more exquisite, are content to sit still and do nothing. There are many layers of irony here. Is the actor speaking as himself, or is he speaking in character? Are he and Nash really the struggling, hungry creatives who are wasting their time trying to entertain a wealthy patron? 
The fact that these words are meant to be spoken not only by a clown but by a ghost is important. Both clowns and ghosts are commentator figures in fiction. Because of their marginal status, they're able to say some of the most subversive things without much consequence. Nash seems especially drawn to these marginal figures in his writing. The main character of his novel, The Unfortunate Traveller, is a servant called Jack Wilton. And as Sam Fallon, who we heard in episode 4, explains... He's not a main player in the history that that he's going to unfold here. He's a servant, right? He's a marginal and precarious and vulnerable figure. And so I think what we're seeing every time Nash wants to talk about himself, directly or indirectly, is this sense of ambivalence and uncertainty. So, ghosts, servants, clowns, they are all in between marginal characters. As we know, Nash was himself often in this marginal position as a writer. He'd be invited to stay as a type of writer-in-residence at a patron's country house for a few months, then go back to his freelance lifestyle, hustling for work and making his money stretch. I'm editing a text for the new Thomas Nash collection called The Terrors of the Night, which he wrote while on the Isle of Wight as the guest of the aristocratic Carey family. As you might be able to tell, it is a text which grapples with the question of nightmares. Are they the result of the devil trying to make you despair, or just some badly digested cheese. Nash is not sure. What he does know, though, is that the more vulnerable we feel in the daytime, the worse we will feel at night. Here's a quotation which, fair warning, is not for the squeamish. A solitary man in his bed is like a poor bedridden leper lying by the highway side, and to whose displayed wounds and sores a number of stinging flies do swarm for pastance and beverage. His naked wounds are his inward heart-griping woes, the wasps and flies, his idle wandering thoughts, who, to that secret smarting pain he hath already, do add a further sting of impatience, and now launch his sleeping griefs and vexations. Life was precarious for almost everyone at this time, but while Nash was writing terrors, his life was even less predictable and secure. Like many others, Nash had spent time in debtor's prison when he hadn't been able to pay his bills. But in autumn 1593, he'd also been sent to jail for antagonising the London authorities, who he had described as, quote, a seeded garden of sin in his pamphlet Christ's Tears Over Jerusalem. His then-patron, George Carey, had helped to secure Nash's release from prison and had invited him to spend Christmas with his family. Here's Professor Liz Oakley-Brown from Lancaster University to tell us more. Elizabeth Carey, one of the famous uh, aristocratic families, the Carey family, at the time of 1594, she's about 18, and she's also known to be a patron of the arts. And Nash dedicates his text to Carey, and he calls her, um, she, he praises her for her sharp wit and religious piety. And I don't find myself saying this very often, but Psalm 91, from the Geneva Bible, thou shalt not be afraid of the night, is perhaps something that sparks this text off in terms of its patron. I think if you were to read this, it's quite calming in a bizarre way. It's a very um, conversational tone because it does start really with the devil. And this text talks about, you know, in the quiet silence of the night, the devil will surprise us. Which doesn't sound very calming or reassuring, does it? But let's think ourselves back into the religious world of the Elizabethans. Psalm 91 reassures believers like Elizabeth Carey that God will protect her from the devil. I will deliver thee from the snare of the hunter, i.e. the devil hunting for human souls. 
Truth shall be thy shield, and thou shalt not be afraid of the fear of the night. It is like having someone in your room with you, which clearly a pious young woman would not have. But I thought, what if you had a young woman of 18? So what might help if you wake up in the middle of the night with one of these terrors and you haven't got a podcast to pop on and you haven't got Twitter to doom scroll (laughs) through, which is a pretty good thing. So I wondered what this text might read like if you had it by your bed as a pamphlet, let's say along with your Bible. I think there's, um, there are aspects of this text which can seem quite comforting. So maybe this text was written as a way to reassure a young woman suffering from nightmares or needing reassurance that God would protect her. And let's be honest, the night really is a scary time whether you believe in the devil or not. You're quite vulnerable while you're asleep and your mind amplifies everything in the dark. It's very difficult to imagine anything as dark as Elizabethan period, I think. It's just impossible. We have so much light pollution, even if we go to very dark bits. I'm near the Lake District, so you can get quite dark there. But even that, I don't think, captures what it must be like to be in the darkness of the 1590s London. Something that Nash talks about is how we're affected by sounds in midst of this absolute darkness. I'm going to say a very general question. Who hasn't been spooked? by the sound of something that that drops in your kitchen at 2am in the morning. And if you can imagine not being out to put the light on and then trying to imagine what that sound is, then I think you get some way to perhaps another reason for writing this text. So Nash is interested in the way our mind amplifies and exaggerates naturally occurring phenomena. You know, he's he's coming up with very material reasons for feeling disturbed at night. And some of those reasons can be because of what you've eaten. Some of those reasons can be um, because you have a fever, because you're ill. Some of those reasons could be because you've been really bad during the day. So sin does crop up here. As you'll remember, Nash had been suddenly moved from one extreme, prison, to the other, the luxury of an aristocratic household, thanks to the intervention of his patron. The following section of Terrors uses a fairly common Christian image of the mind as a prison, But it's hard to read this and not think about Nash's own recent experience in a dark dungeon. The night is the devil's black book, wherein he recordeth all our transgressions. Even as when a condemned man is put into a dark dungeon, secluded from all comfort of light or company, he doth nothing but despairfully call to mind his graceless former life and the brutish outrages and misdemeanours that have thrown him into that desolate horror. So when night in her rusty dungeon hath imprisoned our eyesight, and that we are shut separately in our chambers from resort, the devil keepeth his audit in our sin-guilty consciences. Even though Nash is fairly materialist about the causes of nightmares, we need to remember that concepts like sin and the devil were very real in the Elizabethan worldview. Rachel White explains that the boundaries between the material and the supernatural were much more porous than they are today. I think in the past there's been a desire to separate out early modern beliefs. So this is scientific, this is magical, this is something else. And actually what critics have realised more recently, the last 10 or 15 years in particular, is that these beliefs were not incompatible with one another, not incongruous, weren't even separate many times, that they kind of are all interwoven together in early modern experience. There's an edited collection 
by Marcus Harmes and Victoria Bladen that they mentioned this porous boundary between the supernatural and the secular. So there's this sense that there aren't these hard boundaries that we maybe have imagined and that early modern people were far more comfortable with ideas that perhaps to us seem to be in complete conflict, but to them were not and were really part of lived existence. As Rachel points out, there are examples of scientists who managed to square their specialism in the new field of natural philosophy with older belief systems. I suppose that quite a famous one is Isaac Newton. You know, he's often credited as being the father of modern science. But he also believed in alchemy, this practice of turning base metals into gold, etc., which doesn't seem like the kind of thing the father of modern science would have believed in. But it wasn't incompatible with other the other things he was doing and discovering at the time. I suppose another example might be somebody like John Dee. You know, in many ways, I suppose an early scientist. He he was a mathematician, an advocate for the English language, but he was also an astrologer. Lots of people believed in astrology, but he also communicated or believed he communicated with angels to try and gain further knowledge. I asked Rachel whether John Dee's contemporaries would have seen him as having a legitimate type of career or whether he was instead seen as a con artist or even a threat. His contemporaries didn't really know how to respond to him, I don't think. And I think many of them were probably quite worried about what he was trying to do, particularly the the more sort of esoteric parts of his philosophical inquiry, if we could call it that. I think the thing with legitimate and illegitimate knowledge is no one at the time or now would know exactly where that boundary is. So John Dee would have said, or indeed did say, that he had never strayed beyond that boundary and he'd always acted in accordance with a sort of Christian framework. But other people at the time were concerned about what he was doing. He failed to achieve the level of patronage he wanted when he came back from the continent sort of later in Elizabeth's reign. He ended up in Manchester without patronage, without friends, really. When he left for the continent, his library at Mortlake was burnt down by local people who were worried and scared about what he was doing. So I suppose that's that's the thing. No one really knows what is legitimate and what's illegitimate or when that line has been crossed. And that's the subject of debate within the period as well. Nash was both attracted to and slightly repelled by people who claimed they could communicate with supernatural beings. That line between legitimate and illegitimate knowledge, between true and false prophecy, is one which Nash explores in both Terrors of the Night and his very first pamphlet, The Anatomy of Absurdity. Kirsty Rolfe, who we heard speak about the plague in episode 5, is the editor of Nash's Anatomy and explains why he's so bothered by other writers claiming to predict the future. So he's thoroughly, thoroughly interested in prophecies and he mocks them quite a lot, this idea of being able to predict the future. And here he really kind of links into a wider criticism that's often levelled at lower class people who consume news. 
that they just don't understand, that they don't have the frame of reference and the knowledge and the education to know what they're reading. So in anatomy, there's a bit where he refers to kind of a Cartman reading a prediction and thinking that he's he's going to see a dragon in the sky and that the puddle is a flood and just misinterpreting the landscape around him. We also think that Nash wrote anonymous mock versions of these predictions, which were called prognostications. Rachel White, who's editing some of these prognostications for the Nash edition, explains that they were aimed at a popular audience. So prognostications, they're often printed alongside almanacs, which are sort of yearly um, publications, annual publications. Cheap, I think... I'm trying to remember the figures, but I think there was like one almanac for every two or three households at some point in the period, which is also why they're quite rare because they were so there were so many of them. They were sort of reused as other things, like you know, lining pie dishes and stuff. So we actually don't have that many of them, considering how prolific they were. A modern equivalent would be a newspaper, like the almanac. It's a useful textual object, but also something you throw away when it's out of date. And many of them did have these prognostications attached, which were essentially prose descriptions of what would occur during the year using the astrological signs and calculations to explain why there'd be a particularly bad winter or etc. And we still have star signs in our newspapers and magazines. So really, Nash is writing mock versions of star signs, something which is quite easy to do because they tend to be quite vague. You know, the sort of thing, money's going to be especially important to you this month. When isn't it? Nash is punching down in the anatomy in his mock prognostications. He's mocking the type of working class readers who believe in or at least enjoy reading those type of star signs. While he's still a snob in Terrors of the Night, his criticism is instead aimed at the type of men like John Dee, who are either deluded enough to think they really can predict the future by talking to angels, or who are cynically exploiting the gullible and the scared. Here's Liz Oakley-Brown to say more. There is a couple of really uh, interesting moments in the text, and one of them is to do with people's vulnerability and how tricksters and con men and con people will take advantage of the many poor people that they want to believe in, so that people, there are some parts of society that realise that these are precarious times and that people will have these toes of the night and will exploit them for material gain. In warning people about the dangers of con men pretending to have supernatural powers, Nash had to be careful to distinguish between true and false prophecy. A text Nash refers to repeatedly is Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which was an unusual text for its day because it debunked a lot of contemporary beliefs in witchcraft, superstitions and magic. Scott demonstrated how certain magic tricks actually worked and argued that it was wrong for communities to accuse the poorest and most marginalised women of witchcraft. Both Nash and Scott still needed to be careful about the sceptical claims they made, as Rachel White reminds us. You know, when he's saying, beware false prophets, but the biblical ones, they're fine. He's also having to toe a line of being careful to what he denies, because to deny all prophecy, you're heading quickly into sort of heretical territory or, you know, being labelled an atheist, which is not something you particularly, a label you particularly want at that time. I think Reginald Scott, in his discovery of witchcraft, he's another one that has to kind of toe that line 
acknowledging what is, I suppose, almost mandated belief, whilst also advocating for rationality and that witches don't really exist, except he kind of has to acknowledge that they might. This ambivalence continues when we turn to the Elizabethans' belief in ghosts. In Terrors of the Night, we see Nash balancing a story about the psychedelic apparitions which he says appeared to a dying man, with a suggestion that maybe these apparitions were not supernatural, but instead the hallucinations of an ill mind. So I think early modern people, their beliefs about ghosts would have been quite varied. You do have publications coming out that are more in support of a sort of rationality. So um, Ludwig Glavitas of Ghosts and Spirits Walking at Night, he's advocating rationality, that chances are you haven't really seen a ghost. And quite interestingly, he picks upon the idea it's mostly people who are already fearful that are more likely to see them. He says people who have nothing to fear, who are stout and hearty or whatever, they don't tend to see ghosts. So I think there is a recognition that ghosts, apparitions, are possibly creations of the mind. So I suppose it's almost like early, a sort of early psychological approach in a way, which Nash sort of toys with when he talks about the bubbling scum and things like that. Rachel is referring to a line in Terrors where Nash describes a dream being nothing else but a bubbling scum or froth of the fancy which the day hath left undigested, which does have a surprisingly Freudian ring to it. And it's with that image of undigested froth that I must leave you. This is the final episode of our limited series on Thomas Nash, but don't unsubscribe yet. In the next few months, we'll be releasing a bonus episode where we will reflect on how Elizabethan themes like precarity manifest today. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate DeRaker. The Precarious World of Thomas Nash is produced and written by myself, Kathy Schrank, and Archie Cornish. Editing by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Readings by James Tucker. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. To find out more about our project and to access other Thomas Nash resources, visit research.ncl.ac.uk forward slash the Thomas Nash Project.